0: Well, good morning, everybody. Let's get into your headlines. HSBC rallies in Hong Kong after third quarter profit beats expectations, but falls 36%. The CFO telling CNBC net interest income will remain under pressure. We're not uh, really anticipating higher global rates at this point. I think you can see in today's results that we're signaling we expect the near-zero interest rate environment for something that we're going to have to manage through for the next few years. The path of COVID-19 is obviously the, the critical factor. Santander sees net profit treble in the third quarter, but the Spanish Bank says it'll cut an additional 1 billion euros in costs over the next two years. We'll have the CFO coming up on the program later.
1: Dow leads the sell-off stateside, posting its biggest one-day drop since early September and closing below 28,000 points as rising cases and stalled stimulus weigh on sentiment. Protests break out across Italy after the government imposes renewed virus restrictions, with some demonstrators in Turin turning violent, attacking police with smoke bombs and bottles.
2: And the U.S. Senate confirms President Trump's Supreme Court pick along party lines as Amy Coney Barrett says she will be politically independent. The oath that I have solemnly taken tonight means at its core that
1: I will do my job without any fear or favor and that I will do so independently of both the political branches
2: and of my own preferences. Hey, very good morning to you and welcome to Squawkbox. Box. Let's kick off with some earnings from Novartis, which are just crossing the tape now. The headline for the pharma giant, Novartis delivers solid Q3 performance with 11% core operating income growth, net sales in line with the prior year, strong pipeline progression, which is key for Novartis as they look to offset expected pressure from biosimilars. And in terms of guidance, Novartis has gone ahead and upgraded their full year core operating income guidance analysts had been expecting them to at least confirm their full year guidance and some more bullish analysts had expected them to increase their guidance so they've gone ahead and upgraded their full year expectations looking into the detail now in terms of what they are seeing the Q3 free cash flow has come in at 2.7 billion dollars uh, mainly due that's minus 32% mainly due to payments related to legal settlements Novartis has been in the process of resolving Uh, some uh, litigation. Uh, In terms of the actual uh, performance here, Novartis continues to deliver solid performance with double-digit increases in core operating income and expanding margins despite the impact of COVID-19 on healthcare systems. This had been an issue for Novartis with fewer people visiting hospitals to get treatments, of course. Our key growth drivers and launches are performing well. The strength of the underlying operations enables us to upgrade our full year 2020 core operating income guidance. Uh, in terms of the pipeline, Novartis commenting that they are excited about the progress, including the u- recent US approval uh, of Kazimta for the treatment of relapsing forms of multiple sclerosis. This is one of the key drugs in their pipeline. And uh, some comments around continuing to focus on ESG across the operations. The COVID situation, some specific commentary here. Overall market conditions in the quarter have been recovering, though COVID-19 continues to weigh on certain therapeutic areas, most notably dermatology, ophthalmology, and the Sandoz retail un- retail business. Uh, their operations remain stable. Cash collections continue to, to be according to normal trade terms. So a lot of granularity we're getting here from Novartis um, in terms of the, the impact from COVID. At present, drug development operations are continuing with manageable disruptions so notice noting that there are disruptions to their drug development operations and this would be things like testing drugs that are in their pipeline. So there are disruptions, but they are manageable and they continue to work closely with various parties to fight COVID-19. So the key takeaway guys, I think from these Novartis numbers for me is that they have seen a continued strong recovery in the third quarter. They've gone ahead and upgraded their guidance and the COVID situation is manageable at this stage. Karen, Jeff. Juliana,
0: just um, to pick up on this, a very interesting share price chart over the one year here, because we've looked at the rebound that we've seen in a lot of the pharma stocks. And basically, if you fall into that basket of hero stocks that are working on a vaccine, then you've done extremely well. You only have to look at a company like Moderna to see that ramp of uh, share price performance over the one-year story. But when you come back to Novartis, basically it's 10 Swiss francs lower than where it uh, started the year on the one-year story here. And I know that uh, Vasant Narasimhan has been sort of managing expectations around the Novartis portfolio when it comes to what the impact of a killer vaccine would be um, on um, uh, the whole COVID story here. But Novartis just doesn't seem to have had the same kind of feel-good around it, given the performance of some of these hero stocks. What's it going to take, do you think, to get Novartis's share price moving again? I mean, it might help today with the revised guidance, but is there anything else they need to be doing?
2: So the Novartis equity story is very different from a stock like Moderna. Novartis, uh, one analyst note that I was reading yesterday, likened the Novartis equity story to Roche in 2018. And this is a story of a lot more focus and dependence on new growth drivers to offset expected erosion from biosimilars. So this is when generics come onto the market and start to erode profits in some of Novartis' existing drugs. So that's sort of where we are in the Novartis story. A company like Moderna Moderna and some of the other companies that are active in the COVID vaccine race are much more tied to COVID and Moderna is is much more dependent on uh, profitability and revenues from this vaccine. Novartis is not involved in the vaccine race. They have been active active in trying to uh, uncover potential treatments. They were testing hydroxychloroquine, in early on in the pandemic. So they have been involved most certainly in the COVID-19 fight, but in a more supportive capacity than some of these front runners in the vaccine race. So in terms of catalysts for this stock moving forward, Jeff, Novartis has a Meet Novartis management event on November 24th, which analysts and investors are looking forward to. The outlook for Sanda's, the generics business, is set to be a key focus at this investor day. And they've got more than 15 key pipeline readouts due in 2021. So a huge amount of focus on these uh, potential drugs that Novartis has in the pipeline. And the question for investors, will they come good? And will they come good soon enough to offset the expected erosion from biosimilars?
1: Yes, I was just going to jump in uh, with uh, a comment about the future. I think Novartis is very much focused on big tech. I uh, had a lot of conversations uh, in the past with Fasnarisim, and it was about trying to bring the, the technology into uh, into pharma, into big pharma, to change the way that they go after drug discovery. And clearly that story has been a little bit derailed by the pandemic. Everything is about treatments and vaccines at this point around coronavirus. So uh, for the investor, maybe it is one for the future. Let's push on and take a look at Covestro. This is the German chemicals maker. It uh, did have a pre release earlier in the month where it raised its four year guidance, but the numbers crossing today on Q3 sales down 12.7% to 2.8 billion euros. Even though that is up 7.3%, the group profit also rising up 21.8% at 179 million euros the q3 free operating cash flow that's risen 48.6 percent. it has confirmed its four year forecast that it announced on the 9th of october so no change to that and uh, just in terms of uh, q3 volume sold in the core business they were up three percent demand from the company's uh, customer industries recovered over the course of q3 2020 and if you think about this business and a lot of cyclical industries uh autos aerospace that type of uh area and you can see that this recovery is certainly welcome news the share price though has only been up roughly three odd percent so far year to date we're going to delve more into those earnings a little bit later on with the ceo marcus stallerman and a first on CMC interview at nine CET. yeah i just want to
0: make a very quick point i mean if you put covestro up against another company in the speciality chemical sector like lanxus Kovestro has clearly outperformed on a 12-month basis here. It'll be interesting catching up with Marcus and just finding out what he feels the outlook um, brings for this business. Because mm. as you say, you know they are like all of these chemicals companies, so affected by the cyclicality of the economic cycle. And here we are. You know, you look at the spike in volatility that we've witnessed on the VIX. All of that seems to be saying we're worried now again about a slowdown in economic activity from the higher case of infections that we're seeing globally at this stage. You do wonder you know how comfortable people feel being in the speciality chemical space well, if we go into a s- further series of lockdowns.
1: I can draw a link between Novartis and Covestro having spoken to Marcus at the start of the year in Davos mm. and I was asking him very similar questions about mm. some of the short-term pain that they had seen from say the trade war I mean that was another major issue for them over the past 12 months yeah. the, the damage that had been done to industry demand and he was pointing out that his direction is for the future he looks long-term not short term being positioned in the right industries to capture the the right amount of growth and very similar to what we're just talking about Novartis with another big theme around tech. So I think the same challenge you've got another major event that is royal demand in the form of the pandemic but I imagine he's still very much focused on being positioned correctly for the future.
0: Uh, HSBC has reported third-quarter pre-tax profit of $3.1 billion, beating expectations while still dropping. Uh, Europe's biggest bank said it would deepen cost cuts. The lenders forecast for bad loan provisions this year. Is at the lower end of predictions owing to a lower likelihood of further deterioration in the outlook? Um, it says recap Santander here which is interesting because mm-hmm. I haven't seen that one and I haven't pulled up Santander.
1: Uh, uh, so I can I'm, just uh, pull you a few want things up. Yeah. yeah so what we've heard from the company On the Q3 net interest income, that was at 7.77 billion euros. The Q3 net profit line, 1.75 billion euros. Uh, The fully loaded core Tier one capital ratio, 15.59% at the end of September, which uh, looks fairly high if we talk about those ratios. The bad loan levels, I remember over the years when we spoke in the last financial crisis, we used to rake over the loans for many of the Spanish banks. Uh, The bad loan ratio well below... The levels that we used to talk about at 3.15% at the end of September, mm-hmm. uh, a very low number uh, uh, that you're seeing in terms of return on tangible equity, another metric for the industry. Unfortunately, that is also a low. This is a number you actually want to be a little bit higher at 3.30% at the end of September, very very uh, a low level from what uh, many investors had probably wanted to see. The nine-month loss, 9.05 billion euros, is what you've got tallied up from the bank.
0: Well, I mean, the second quarter was a horror, wasn't it? I used to um, regularly every quarter uh, fly out to Madrid and have conversations with the management team. And, um, you know, since we've been in the, the lockdown phase, a lot of the promise... Um, seems to have just been put on the back burner here And the second quarter was a horror huge provisioning as uh, let's have a look 12.6 billion euros they they booked on COVID provisioning here and they reported a record net loss in the second quarter I guess when your markets are Spain Brazil Mexico Chile the United States these are all markets that have dealt quite badly with the infection spike so almost inevitable I think that things are going to be challenging but maybe there are one or two um, positive notes in here particularly about um, the loan loss provision going forward so it'll be interesting to hear what uh,
1: the team has to say this morning. Well diversification used to count for the bank I mean as you used to read through those reports you can see it in the numbers interest rate differentials used to count for profitability all the corridors that you mentioned had much higher cash rates and they also had, in many cases, often stronger growth rates as well, which meant some resilience in the bank earnings. Mm. But this time around, when you talk about a global pandemic, it's very hard to hide out in, in quarters of the world. So you see that dual hit in in the, in the three-month period. But from here, you know, hopefully there should be some form of recovery because we are seeing different COVID cases across various jurisdictions. It was also just worth noting there was a line on the dividends, which is what I know a number of investors have been looking at with the UK dividends. They say that they will be able to resume those cash Dividend once regulatory conditions allow. So, already trying to appease some of the shareholders on that payout.
0: Uh, let's just point out later on in the program, we're going to speak with the CFO, Jose Garcia Cantera. That's a first-on interview at 8.30 Central European time. Uh, we're also going to talk about some of the other numbers we've had out this morning. Obviously, we've uh, had a good look at the HSBC figures as well. But which of these banks, if any at all, should you own? 730C, will have a conversation with Citi's global head of bank research, Ronit goes.
1: It was a broad sell-off on US markets yesterday. Uh, this is a look at uh, how we wrapped up the trading session. 2.3 off for the Dow, so the biggest of falls on that index. The concentration of selling uh, for the Dow, one of the big sellers was Salesforce and for the S&P and the Nasdaq, it was Microsoft uh, on the eve of earnings. So some of the big tech names falling. But more broadly, what we saw were uh, increasing fears again around the spike of infections around coronavirus. So it was very sensitive sectors like energy, financials, industrial, travel leisure companies that suffered over the course of the trading day. But we have been pointing out a very volatile period that we've now entered in this final stretch as we count down to the US election, also with the absence of any fresh news on stimulus. So the market was primed for a little bit of a rise in some of that uh, volatile activity. And we certainly witnessed it in session. If we can just switch over the charts, you can see what it looked like for the Dow in terms of that sell-off of 650-odd points. This was the worst sell-off since about early September, as you can see uh, a dip taking place back in that month but a fairly vicious uh, selling taking place in session in terms of what we've got elsewhere on the vix let's just take a look on that index you can see a spike in the volatility we're now above that 30 level on the fear gauge as uh, just some of the market uh, it becomes a little bit more watchful of some of the extreme uh, selling and in fact, you could say buying that happens on some of these trading patterns. And you can imagine as we now get closer to the election where you can see more positioning around a blue wave or with a more cautious bets take effect. The other big uh, thinking on the markets is when you actually get the result, perhaps you'll get even more full positioning around whether it's Trump or Biden because markets maybe don't want to fully price in one of these outcomes just in case they're caught wrong on that decision this time round. In terms of what we've got on the Asian markets, uh, it's been a a day of mostly selling across the region, 1.7% down for Australia, picking up on some of these global themes. Hong Kong, a weaker session playing out there too. But a little bit of a patch of green around the Chinese market, where many are still closely eyeing conversations by Chinese leaders, by the Communist Party, that market flat, and you can see Japan as well. In terms of what we're seeing on the European markets, I want to just refresh your memory as to what we witnessed yesterday, a huge day of selling on the German stock market in particular, as we saw the weight of selling on SAP, very disappointing numbers crossed on uh, late on Sunday, and the market reaction happened yesterday, that stock down a fairly mighty 22%, destroying the fortunes for the DAX and that market down a fairly heavy 3.7%. Uh, it was uh, a much deeper sell off than you witnessed elsewhere across the European markets that were still firmly in the red by the close. But let's just see how that sets us up for the trading session. Sometimes you do get a snap back after fairly strong sell offs and that is uh, what we we're seeing. A little bit of green marching back onto these boards. those slim ranges you've got to say after that sizable loss that we saw yesterday so perhaps investors just playing cautious in this week uh, the final stretch of that US election
0: Uh, Let's talk about the uh, infection rate. The US has reported more than 76,000 cases over the last 24 hours as infections continue to spike in several states throughout the country. Patient hospitalizations have also reached a two-month high while the nation's death toll has surpassed 225,000. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has urged White House officials to quickly reach a deal on a massive new stimulus plan, this after a phone call between Pelosi and Treasury Secretary Mnuchin failed to break the impasse in talks over key issues like jobless benefits and state aid. In a letter to House Democrats, Pelosi hit out at Republicans saying they are refusing to respond to the threat posed By the virus. Meanwhile, White House economic advisor Larry Kudlow said differences remain between both sides, but remained optimistic a deal can be reached before next week's election. The talks have certainly slowed down, but they're not ending. I mean, one thing I will say is the uh, committee chairman on both sides, Senate and House, have been meeting and discussing various aspects, you know, the small business loans and uh, many other issues. different appropriations. Uh, We'll get a report uh, this morning. Uh, Secretary Mnuchin will be talking to them. I I think he's going to be talking to Speaker Pelosi. Uh, The big issue here right now is we're close, but there are still important policy issues that separate us.
1: Coming up on the show, Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed to the Supreme Court declaring her independence after a highly partisan nomination process. Amy Coney Barrett has been sworn in to the United States Supreme Court. The Senate confirmation of President Trump's nominee came mostly along party lines, with Republican lawmakers cementing a conservative majority on the country's highest court. Joining us now is Amanda Venteria, who is National Political Director, Hillary Clinton campaign. Amanda, thank you very much for joining us today. We've had this 11th hour confirmation of Justice Barrett. How big an election issue do you think this is? Do you think voters will, will cast their vote at the ballot box because of this issue?
3: Well, thanks for having me. And I have to tell you, uh, here folks were up pretty late tonight. Um, Many progressives, women, LGBTQ community, pretty disappointed to see this. Everyone expected it, though, so it's not necessarily going going to change any voting behavior, except for I think folks are going to wake up fired up. Um, really understanding that elections matter and what happened in these last eight days is just indicative of what many women in, in America have seen, what many LGBT communities have been fighting for. And so I think it's going to fire up more folks. But at the end of the day, people are set on where they are and it will help the bases accordingly. Um, but I'm not seeing a change based on this, just a sentiment of people more fired up for the next eight days.
1: Hard is this one to call at this stage. We've got Biden leading in the national polls, but still huge question marks around some of those swing states, the battlegrounds, and also when it comes to mail-in votes, if they arrive late this time.
3: That's right. I mean, this is an entirely new election for us. There are different ways of voting this time around. There are different tactics that both the campaigns are using, and we now, what a lot of the Democrats will talk about, is every day is an election day and has been. And what you can see is while we might hear about popular vote, it doesn't matter. When you're actually thinking about our electoral college, it matters what is happening in the counties that make up that win number. And in those states, we do see that it's always a tight race, but we're particularly seeing that now as we go into these last eight days and both campaigns are pushing as hard as they can. Of course, Biden looks like he has the edge, but no one after 2016 is going to wait and hope. Instead, you're seeing both of these campaigns push really hard into these final days.
0: Um, We are obviously uh, taking, Amanda, a a lot of interest in the Supreme Court nomination process. And um, obviously, it's been a, a key political issue between the parties. Is it getting any traction at all with the general public?
3: It really isn't. Again, this was one of those that was expected. What I will say is it's indicative of the partisanship, though. And it could have some impact on how people vote down ballot on those Senate races. There's no doubt that this will spur up more money coming into the final days on the Democratic side to make sure that this kind of thing never happens and that the Senate can turn over. Because what it does do is it gives you an indication of what is happening in the Senate. Um, I worked there for a decade. And certainly there's a different sentiment and and that has really intensified. But this decision... To do this eight days in the way that it was done will really add to that intensity and make it more important for Democrats to win the to win those seats to flip the Senate. And there's a shot to be able to do it in a lot of states that no one believed we can do it when this first election started. Now we're seeing state after state, those races are tightening and there is a very good chance that Democrats could flip the Senate.
0: There's been a a lot made, particularly by the Republicans, of course, about the cognitive abilities of uh, Mr. Biden. Um, I think over the weekend, there was another snafu where he, uh, in an interview, talked about uh, um, George rather than Trump in a a, a conversation uh, with a a journalist. Um, Is there a need for us to uh, think more about um, the likelihood of uh, the vice president becoming president if Biden wins?
3: I think we've all gotten used to Joe uh, using different words and having gaffes. I mean, that's his that has been his reputation over time. And folks have been really comfortable that with that, um, to be honest. And so I don't think there's much to worry about here. I think it's a very fun tactic for Trump to push on when he feels like it. Um, but the truth is, most Americans really do know Joe. They've been used to this Joe. And in some ways, it's endearing for a lot of folks, particularly his supporters, who now see, you know, what, what Biden has said at the very beginning of this race, which is this is the, about the soul of the American people, about the soul of the country. And that is proving to be true, despite the fact that he does have these gaffes during the election cycle.
2: Amanda, more than 62 million Americans have already cast their vote and, of course, that number rising every day. What have we learned about voter turnout based on the votes that we've seen come in in terms of demographics like age and race? Does that tell us anything about the likely election outcome?
3: It does. We are seeing younger voters come out in record numbers. We are seeing um, Latinx community come out in record numbers. And that's a really big deal because when you think back to the Obama coalition, you look at that data. The big piece that was really important that split a place like Florida, North Carolina, was that youth vote the Latinx, black community, really that coalition that came through. And so the fact that we're seeing this in these early votes really matters as we start to really um, look at what the trend and what the momentum is. I will say in this election cycle, it is even more telling because this is so unusual that one of the things every campaign worries about is what happens to our supporters that on that very last day to vote, something comes up and they don't come to vote. Now what we're seeing is folks are voting early, folks are making a plan, and the fact that we're seeing that early really does give a lot of confidence for what we're not only going to see on election day, but what we're going to see out of these results.
2: What happens to Trump? Staunch Trump supporters, if Biden does win, it's not as if things will necessarily go back to the way they were before 2016. We now understand that there is a huge portion of the American people who have supported Trump, support his policies, and there seems to be some concern that it's not going to necessarily be a smooth transition among the public if we do get Biden, if we do see Biden take the presidency.
3: You know, I think that's one of the important aspects that folks were very worried about in that first debate when uh, you heard President Trump talk about whether or not he would support a peaceful transition of power. But what are we, what we are now seeing is we're seeing Biden grow in momentum, and all along the way, he has said I'm American, I'm am, I'm an American president for all people. That's a really important aspect should this happen, because there is concern and there is worry that if Biden wins, does Trump try and actually intensify that kind of sentiment after you've lost an election? And there's a real worry about that. But what I see coming at us is I see a president potential president, a future president who has consistently said, I'm an an American president for all Americans. And I think that's a really important piece to this all. It'll also depend on what we see out of Republicans, out of the Senate and the House, how they respond to this moment. And one thing that's really important is even if Trump doesn't necessarily want to agree with the results, remember there are tons of down ballot races where Republicans are running and they're also going to be winning in some of these races. And so they find themselves and will find themselves in a very precarious position should Biden win and Trump lose. And Trump tries to really question the results of this campaign or this election cycle.
0: Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com.
1: Or join us again on this show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.